This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Royal palaces are the places where history was made. Hampton Court Palace, the home of Jane Seymour's death in 1537 and the arrest of Catherine Howard, who is believed to haunt the gallery since the 1540s. The Tower of London, home of many well-known executions during the reign of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. My guest today is fortunate enough to work in these historic places. Historian Tracy Borman. Tracy is Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces, which includes both Hampton Court and the Tower of London. She is also Chief Executive of the Heritage Education Trust, a charity that encourages children to visit and learn from historic properties. Tracy Borman is also an author with a long list of nonfiction books under her belt and has now added historical fiction to her collection. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Telling the story of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most. Whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian, I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. Before I get started today, I need to take a minute to thank all the folks who became new patrons during my break. Amy H., Heather D., James B., Tess, Mindy R., and Deb. A full list of current patrons can be found on my new blog, TutorsDynastyPodcast.com. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon.com slash TutorsDynasty and click Become a Patron. For as little as $1 per month, you can show your support. Throughout the month of September, I am running a giveaway. So for anyone who pledges $5 or is a current $5 pledge, you will be entered into a drawing to win an amazing package of Tudor goods. The winner will be drawn in the first week of October. All this information can be found in the show notes after the show. So without further ado, Tracy Borman. Hello there. Nice to be talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to talk to you. Most of the listeners and followers know you best from your work writing about the Tudors. Mm-hmm. You've written Elizabeth's Women, Thomas Cromwell, The Private Lives of the Tudors, as well as your newest book, Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him. That's right. I love the Tudors, as you can probably tell from, from my books. And I always just come back to them. I started out as a Tudor historian, you know, way back in school, it was always the Tudors, really, for me. And and it's remained that way ever since, with a few little diversions. <laughs> so which person from the Tudor court intrigues you the most? Oh, that's such a good question, because um, it's really hard to choose. I would have to say, though, um, monarchs aside, because, you know, they do tend to dominate things, I would say it has to be Thomas Cromwell. Um, Obviously, I've written a biography, as you say, of him, but that in turn was inspired 
really by Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall because she gave us a completely different Cromwell to the one we thought we knew from the history books, who's much more of a kind of cynical politician, black-hearted villain kind of character, whereas the Wolf Hall Cromwell is altogether more sympathetic. You actually like him, you're rooting for him. And I just thought, well, that's the fiction. I want to find out about the real man who inspired this. And, and that's really when I set out to write the nonfiction. I would have loved to have met Thomas Cromwell and just really find out if I got it right uh, in my biography and, and just ask him all sorts of questions. It'd be fascinating. So in your recent book, Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him, it came to my attention that some of the men who made him were probably a little bit more intelligent than the others. Yes, uh, indeed. Which of these men do you think was the smartest and why? Oh, so obviously Thomas Cromwell was high up there in terms of you know being super smart. Um, he was just really a, a genius at so many things, law, property, um, administration, religion, of course. Um, but he learned from the master. I think Thomas Wolsey uh, was was the sort of original chief minister, if you like, uh, the, the kind of right-hand man to Henry VIII. And he got where he was on just merit alone. And this was so rare in the Tudor court where it's filled with sons of dukes and other nobles that are really born to their position. With Wolsey, he works his way up from from nowhere. He's the son of a butcher and he has no right to be at court, but he is a brilliant administrator, very, very shrewd politician, enormously clever. He's a great intellectual and um, and he knows exactly how to play Henry. And he knows that what Henry wants as a young king is time to follow his pleasurable pursuits. And so Wolsey is all too happy to take the burdens of state from Henry's shoulders. And this is how he rises really to greatness. But you've got to give Henry credit. He's, he's good at spotting potential in the men who serve him. And, uh, you know, it, he, he didn't have the same kind of snobbery, really, um, that his fellow courtiers did. So he saw this brilliant administrator in Wolsey, the butcher's boy, as everyone else called him, and he, he didn't care about his status. He just promoted him on his ability alone. One of the things I took from your book that kind of surprised me was the role that Thomas Cromer, the Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, took. He seems mm. to me from reading your book, he was the smartest of them all. He was very smart. He was very smart and uh, quite an unusual character because, it, of course, he, he rises to the highest ecclesiastical office in the land. He becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. But it's he seems lacking in ambition in a way. It's, it's his faith that drives him. He's a great intellectual, um, but he does take he's quite a a slow thinker in a way. He actually takes many years to complete his degree at Cambridge. And he's he's not like the sort of quick minds of Cromwell and Wolsey. He's much more of a careful, considerate thinker. Um, but um, absolutely, he's he has a great mind. And I think what Henry respected most about Cranmer is he realised that Cranmer was going to give him the truth. He He doesn't disguise with 
you know, the usual kind of ambition and, and telling the king what he thinks he wants to hear, he tells Henry the truth. And that is why the king respected him and why he continued to honour and to promote him. One of the polls that I feature on my my Facebook page or my Twitter account most often that I have to ask you is which of the six consorts of Henry VIII is your favorite and why? <laughs> I love this question because my favorite is absolutely decided and she is Anne of Cleves. I just love Anne of Cleves so much. Um, she is so often dismissed as just the ugly wife, you know, the, the shortest marriage, insignificant. I would make a case for her being the most successful of the wives. She was certainly the most sensible. I mean, she, she'd learned from the example of her predecessors. She's not going to stand on principle and refuse an annulment where she can see the writing on the wall. So she gives Henry what he wants and Henry rewards her richly for, I mean, it's the ultimate divorce settlement. She gets five palaces, uh, the equivalent of about $40,000 a year in Tudor money. So millions and millions today. Um, and more than that, she's just really well liked. She's she's really well respected. Even Henry, um, once he's she's no longer his wife, he actually realizes how much he likes her, and and she's called the king's sister. She's given the same status as if she were the king's sister. So actually, she lives quite a happy life, and you get the feeling, you know, it's not just Henry who had the lucky escape. I think probably Anne had a much lucky escape. Um, and we should not be so fixated on uh, her so-called ugliness, which I don't believe in anyway. I mean, frankly, Henry was no oil painting by the time he married her. So I think <laughs> Anne did very well. And I love her pragmatism and her common sense. And I think it speaks volumes that you know nobody had a bad word to say against her. So I, I would absolutely love to write a book about Anne of Cleves. She's always been my favourite. It seems like for so many years, Anne Boleyn is always the one that people have listed as, oh, she's my favorite just because, yeah. of, because of her story. But I've really seen a surge in popularity when it comes to Anne as of lately. Good, good. I, I hope I'm kind of in that charge forward for, for Anne because I just think she deserves a lot more credit, a lot more attention. I guess her story isn't as as tragic it's not as dramatic as as the sort of romantic heroine that is Anne Boleyn and she has long been by far the most popular of the wives but I think it's about time that there's a bit more balance in this and that we gave a, a bit more attention to to Anne of Cleves and indeed you know the uh, the, the other wives as well the other four apart from Anne, Anne Boleyn and uh, because they're all fascinating, they all have stories to tell in their own right. I'm sort of fairly influenced at the moment by the wives, uh, about the wives, by the musical Six. I don't know if um, you have it over there yet, but it's it's taken London by storm. And it's a musical about the six wives of Henry VIII. And it just presents them as you've never seen them before. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, so I'd recommend it to all your listeners and um, uh, and fans. <laughs> I think it's beginning to take storm here in the U.S. It's nowhere near me yet, but once it is, I'll be I'll be in oh, line. 
you won't be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tracy, you get to work in some of the most amazing places, and it's so easy for me to imagine you roaming the halls of Hampton Court Palace <laughs> with the ghosts of Tudor past all around you. Is it still quite magical to work in such historic buildings? You know, I've worked there for 10 years now and I still have to pinch myself when I'm walking up the drive of Tudor Court, of Tudor Court Hampton Court every morning and I just, it, it's a shivers down the spine moment, even now, even now. It's the magic of the place is just phenomenal. And of course, it's just one of the six palaces that I work in and, and we're not supposed to have favourites, but Hampton Court is my favourite and, and it's probably hard for it not to be as a Tudor historian it's a complete dream come true to be working there and even though you know I, I'm not going to make my job sound too glamorous because I spend a lot of my time in meeting rooms and answering emails and that kind of thing but I'm still at Hampton Court so you know I can still go and roam the great halls and the, and the state rooms uh, just for half an hour or so and it, it, it's magical um, I, I feel incredibly blessed to be working there. I think some people also have an unrealistic idea of what it's like to be an historian. Tracy, mm. what does your average day look like? Well, um, I don't know if I am typical of a historian because I split my time between being a joint chief curator of the historic royal palaces and also then the other half of my time being an author, uh, broadcaster um, and 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 the like. So I've sort of got a number of different things that I do. Um, and what I tend to do is divide my weeks so that I always have um, at least one, hopefully two writing days. And they are my favourite days when I get to go to the British Library and do my research and my writing. Those days stand out for me as the ones that I love the most. Um, but increasingly, I am doing broadcasting. I've filmed a few series and they're, they're shown in the US as well as the UK on sort of private lives of, of different figures in history. Um, I've just filmed a, quite a long series about the Tower of London, which was fascinating. So broadcasting is sort of taking over my life a bit at the moment. It's, it's great fun, uh, but it's a hungry beast and it doesn't always leave that much time for writing and, and the sort of core work of a historian. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's all a joy. It's all history. Everything i do history is the, is the sort of common factor and um it's what i've always loved and i remember when i was at school a careers advisor saying to me well you know you can't have a career in history you, the, the most you can do is teach if you like history um but otherwise forget about it just have it as a hobby and how wrong they were so i would like to say if anybody's listening and they're an as aspiring historian or curator absolutely if you have the passion for history then please please follow your dream because it's so worth it you know you mentioned writing and as far as writing goes you have made quite a name for yourself in the nonfiction arena so my question what made you decide to take a stab at fiction oh well I love historical fiction when I'm not researching my books and when I'm just reading for pleasure it's always historical fiction um and it was really a bit of a, a dream to be able to write it myself one day. I, I wasn't sure if I would have that opportunity. Um, but the idea for my 
first uh, fiction trilogy, um, which I've just completed, actually, was born from a book I wrote about the witch hunts uh, that swept across Europe, and in particular it, in England in the early 17th century. So I've actually left the Tudors for fiction. I, I'm basing my novels in the early Stuart court. So James I, son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and his court. And it was such a dark and dangerous time. Plots were swirling endlessly about the throne. Of course, the gunpowder plot is the most famous of them all. And it was just a gift uh, as a fictional setting uh, because I had so many real events uh, to pin my narrative around and actually so many colourful characters. Uh, and so I based the novel on a real woman. I think it was important for me as a historian to actually have... A, you know, a, a real person as my heroine. Um, she was uh, Frances Gorges, a fantastic name. I couldn't have made that up if I tried. And she was the daughter of one of Elizabeth I's ladies in waiting. So uh, she's real and I follow her story uh, through the three novels. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was a dream come true. Very, very different skill, though, I have to say, to writing nonfiction. And I quickly learned you have to show, not tell. You know, you have to convey the information through drama, through scenes and dialogue, not just say, and then this happened, and then this happened, as you kind of would in nonfiction. Uh, but I think I think I've got the hang of it now and I love it. You have done such a wonderful job telling the story. It's funny for me to hear that it was a kind of a struggle at first for you, as well as it is for people my, like myself who have started out blogging, um, yeah. you know, writing about historical events, trying to then switch that into historical fiction is quite a feat. And you have done such a fantastic job with this series, bringing, oh, bringing the scenes to life. It it was amazing to me. I, oh, I, I've oh, really thank you. enjoyed that's so it. Nice to hear. <laughs> one of the th thank you, because that's what I hope to do. So, so that's brilliant. One of the things I noticed um, in the King's Wish, which was Francis, was maybe what you would call a healer. Yes. And yes, exactly. you, you did such a great job um, conveying your knowledge of the herbs and concoctions that she may have mm. used. Where did you learn about that? Oh, you know what. The the other thing that I learned so quickly about fiction, apart from the show Not Tell, was just how much research you had to do. I think I was quite naive and I thought, oh, you know, for fiction, you don't need to do nearly as much research as for nonfiction. But goodness me, you almost need to do more uh, because it's the social research. It's the etiquette, how people dressed. And in Francis's case, as you say, she's a healer. So I suddenly had to become an expert in herbal remedies, in the various tinctures and potions that were used at the time to treat all manner of illnesses. Because it's easy to think, actually, they didn't know what they were doing. Everything was ineffective. You hear about the weird and wonderful cures, so-called, of the time. But actually, these women knew an awful lot about the healing properties of different plants, um, and, it, and it increasingly spices that were brought in from the new world. And so they put them to very good use. And it involved a lot of research. So I almost feel that I could be a healer now because I did so much research into this area, but completely fascinating. And it really gave me a whole new respect for these women. They were mainly women, the healers of the, of the 17th century uh, that I looked at and just how much they knew. And, and these healers were far more effective than the very expensive doctors who would come over and, with their leeches and weird potions that did more harm than good. Th these wise women or healers actually 
you'd have been much better off going to see one of those if you had something wrong. And Frances was quite drawn to helping people and healing them. And she gets herself into trouble in the book because she can't resist wanting to help. Yeah, that's right. She's drawn to it. As you say, she's she has this compulsion to, to help people to heal. She sees it as God given this skill. Um, but uh, while that may have been fine in uh, previous years, now that James the first is on the throne, he is obsessed with the idea that witches are the number one evil in society and they need to be rooted out and that God has appointed him to do that. And suddenly healers are viewed with suspicion because they're they're sort of meddling with nature and, um, you know, they have no right to do so. And who's to say that they're not casting spells on people or poisoning them with their potions? So suddenly healers becomes synonymous with witchcraft. And so it's an incredibly dangerous time to be alive and to be female, but above all, to have any kind of association uh, with healing. And of course, all three of those apply to my heroine. I've always had a difficult time with the reign of James I because of the witch hunts. And it was, to me, it always seemed to be such a dark period in history. Mm. And you did such a good job in The King's Witch at getting me interested in what was going on, that there was just as much drama and intrigue as there was in the Tudor court, that I once I finished The King's Witch, I immediately went online about The Devil's Slave. Ah, brilliant. Oh, well, that's good to hear. Thank you. Because that's out, I think, in the States next week. So, um, or very soon anyway, maybe the week after, 9th of September. So it's very, very exciting um, to be talking uh, about that because, you know, it, for me, this always was a trilogy in my mind. The um, There was so much to say about my heroine and, and her life, you know, without giving too much away, it spans an incredible period. And so um, what I wanted to do with The Devil's Slave was to follow straight on from where the King's Witch left off on something of a cliffhanger, I hope. Um, but I, what frustrates me is with sequels where it says kind of dot, 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 10 years later, and you're like, no, I want to know what happened in, in those 10 years. <laughs> Yes. So I made I literally picked up the thread from where I left off and and she's still in jeopardy and all sorts of adventures await uh, in the sequel. And I'm I'm really excited because I'm actually coming over to the, in October um, and uh, I think I'm speaking mainly on Henry VIII and his men. Uh, but it coincides with we, with the new novel being out. And so I hope to be able to to kind of meet people who are interested in the novel, maybe do a few signings. Um, it's it's really thrilling to think that it's being read, you know, not just here in England, um, but the States as well. I'm thrilled to bits. It's so much fun. And I look forward to the third installment. I know um, you just recently finished um, your drafts. Yes, I did. I did. My favorite part of the writing process is pressing send when you've done it. And it's it's like, oh, it's like finishing exams when you're, you know, a student at school or whatever. It was a great, it was a great moment. But also it was a sad moment because it's like, that's, that's the end of the trilogy. But um, yeah, uh, that the third and final part uh, will be out next year. Um, and, you know, I'd kind of like to leave the door open for more, but, but who knows?
Oh, that would be fantastic. I'm probably about two thirds of the way through The Devil's Slave right oh, now. And I, I don't want to finish it because now I know how long I have to wait for the next installment. <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, not me holding things up. I've finished it. <laughs> Just things like edit, editing and picture research and all that boring stuff. But uh, yes, <laughs> anyway, it's time yeah, I hope it'll be worth the wait when it when it comes out. Do you have a name already? Can you reveal what the name will be? Well, I have a working title, and that title is The Fallen Angel. And there are a number of reasons behind that, which I can't reveal, but I love that title. Uh, my publishers are still deciding um, whether that's going to be it. So I'll give you a kind of, you know, an exclusive potential reveal is that it's that. Um, but uh, it's it's very much to be confirmed. I love it. So do you have, I don't want to like be like, so what else do you have going on? Because obviously you're doing a lot of work right now, but are there any other books that you're working on right now or that you're researching? Yes, I'm switching back to nonfiction for my next two books. Um, actually, before that, um, I'm doing another, uh, an extra bit uh, to my Thomas Cromwell um, biography. I'm at she um adding um a, a new um kind of dimension to it a new appendix to that book and it's going to have a special edition out next year but my next two main books are both non-fiction um i can tell you the second of those is about elizabeth the first my all-time historical heroine the first of those though i can't yet reveal but suffice it to say it's going to be the biggest book that i have ever written which is why next year i'm basically hibernating i'm um taking a big break from from doing events and the like and i'm just going to be there pretty much living in the british library i think in order to get this book written but it's yeah it's it's huge exciting um so i hope to be able to reveal exactly what it is very soon oh exciting so do you enjoy the research or the writing part more ah uh, uh, research research Search always. Um, I think I just love it. I I used to work at the National Archives in London, and and I have such a passion for original documents. I think you know it's like touching history. They bring it to life more than anything else. And so, the res research for me is the real joy. Um, but what I do, and this is a tip that I gleaned from Alison Weir, um, who is well, our best-selling female historian um which is to research and write as i go along so i used to sort of do all the research and then basically just write it all up into a book but it, in a way it's much less efficient and much more daunting to have the writing hanging over you so researching and writing um means the book is evolving all the time in front of you as you're researching and you're always adding new things there's lots of rewrites as you find out new stuff of course but it's a much more efficient way of doing things and a much more enjoyable way um and so that's that's now uh, i i now do the alison weir method as i call it <laughs> that's great advice for new writers out there that is it wonderful. really is it's really motivating you know because otherwise it used to stress me out i'd spend you know three quarters of the time doing the research and think oh god i've got all these notes and i don't know how i'm going to write this all up and where did i you know you you remember vaguely that you found something out and then you can't find the reference to it this way the book is being written all the time it's growing in front of your eyes even while you're doing your research and it's much much i, I heartily recommend it to all, all your listeners Okay, Tracy, now part of the show where I ask you the fun questions. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. If I could give you a time machine, what time and place would you travel to? Oh, gosh, time and place. I think 
it would have have to be um, April 1536, uh, Henry VIII's court, and I would be on Thomas Cromwell's shoulder uh, as he plotted as I believe he did, but I'd like to find out for sure as he plotted the downfall of Anne Boleyn and just find out exactly who was pulling the strings with all that. Was it Thomas Cromwell? Was it Henry VIII? Um, Was Anne Boleyn really guilty? I don't believe that for a second, but I would love to go back and find out for sure. Wouldn't it be great to be a fly on the wall? Oh, of that time more than any, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So who is your favorite um, author that you're reading or that you've read in the past? Oh, so I'm a huge fan of Alison Weir for uh, nonfiction and indeed for fiction as well. Um, C.J. Sansom, I absolutely love his novels, um, the sort of Shard Lake series. I don't know if they're, they're I'm sure they are out in the States as well, but they, I, I love those. Of course, Hilary Mantel. Um and, oh, gosh, so many other historians that I can think of. Um, Nicola Tallis, she's a great up-and-coming historian. Sarah Gristwood. Um, it's a really great community, actually, of female historians. I'm not just being sort of sexist in this. I do, I do read male historians as well, of course. Um, but uh, there's a really great community at the moment of, of um, female historians. And so it's, it's great to be part of that. We're living in such a great time for writing for the Tudors and all of history. It's quite amazing. It really is. And long may it continue. I kind of get asked a lot, why are people so fascinated with the Tudors still? You know, it's always been written about so much. I think and hope we always will be. It is the most dramatic of periods and you literally couldn't make it up when it comes to the Tudors. Tracy, so I am so pleased to have had you on the show today. Thank you again. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Where can the listeners find you in your books? So um, I have a website, which is tracyborman.co.uk. My books are on sale, you know, kind of all major retailers, Amazon and the like. And on my website, there is a full list of all the events, all the talks I do. Um, So, you know, uh, they are mainly UK based. But as I say, I am coming over to the States um, in October. So uh, this New York and Chicago. So I do get about a little bit. So all the details are on my website. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at tutorsdynastypodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, or Podbean. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.